Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us Professor John Shields. He is Professor of Government at Claremont McKenna College, author of, among other things, The Democratic Virtues of the Christian Right. Uh, last year, he co-authored a book with Stephanie Moravchik uh, entitled Trump's Democrats. Uh, this is our topic today. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me, Mark. Uh, first, do you want to say a word about your co-author since I couldn't pipe in both of you? Sure. My co-author is Stephanie Moravchek. She's a, an adjunct scholar at uh, the Institute for Advanced Studies in American Culture at the University of Virginia. She's also a visiting professor here at Claremont McKenna College. And I should also note that we're married, so we did this project together. She writes much better than you do. She researches much more thoroughly than you do. Is this correct? Yeah, I'd have to say, uh, okay. of course it's true. Of course it's true. Okay. Don't hesitate, pal. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. The, the first phenomenon uh, in, in your book, a lot of good data, a lot of good analysis, but the first phenomenon relative to the 2016 election. So this is well before 2020. We'll ask you to reflect on 2020 a little bit. But the first phenomenon you note in 2016 is that many heavy Democrat counties went for Trump. And that, that hap while that happened with Nixon and Reagan, those elections were landslides, whereas Trump lost the popular vote, but he still pulled a lot of traditional Democrat counties. How do you go about explaining this? Yeah, thanks, Mark. That's a nice setup. And, and that's where we began. I mean, that was a really astonishing development, right, that Trump won all these very loyal places, even in a year in which he lost the popular vote. So he's in a lot of ways much more interesting. You know, the Trump Democrats are a lot more interesting than the Nixon Democrats or the Reagan Democrats. And we explored this question by spending time in three different places. So we wanted to take a deep dive into these communities. We wanted to live in them. And we wanted to see them close up. We wanted to see what the social norms were, the cultural norms were. And uh, one of the things that struck us, Mark, is that a lot of these places are Trumpian in a lot of ways. Uh, certainly the Democratic leaders in these communities are Trumpy. Uh, that is to say they are they're brazen, they're tough, they're a little thin-skinned, they're relentless counterpunchers, they're nepotistic. Uh, they promise to take care of their, of their constituents and provide for them. They are sort of like local patrons and bosses in these communities. And they promise to take care of them by cutting deals in corners if needed. So these communities, you know, to be a Democrat in these communities is, is not to be very ideological. You know, I mean, one of the things that struck us about uh, the Democrats there is that, you know, to be a Democrat in these places doesn't mean that you take 
you know, sort of progressive positions uh, necessarily on things like guns or abortion or the environment. Rather, really to be a Democrat in these places meant that you were really connected to local bosses in a sort of transactional way, right? So, you know, you sort of, uh, that the local boss does lots of small favors for his supporters, and he expects a lot of loyalty in return. And so in a way, I mean, one of the strange things and interesting things about this world, Mark, is that, you know, to visit them in a way is to sort of get a glimpse of the old Democratic Party as it used to exist. You know, it was it gave us a, a sort of window into the, the sort of tradition of machine politics. And we sometimes think that that world has utterly disappeared. And it has from the places that professionals live. Well, I was going to say, uh, uh, John, I mean, you, you talked about getting out, visiting, actually talking to people. Couldn't you just write this book sitting at home at your computer and rely on the news and polls? Couldn't you? Huh? <laughs> Well, you know, we've learned, uh, cer certainly you can learn a lot from survey data. And we, you know, are grateful to the our, our colleagues who do really great survey research. It really did help us write this book, but there's a lot of limits to it. And one of the biggest limits is, you know, if you're doing survey-based research, you're really imposing your own theoretical interests and assumptions on a world that you don't know very well. And, and this is always a problem with survey research. It's always a limitation of survey research. But I would, I would argue that it's really one that's deepened. And it's deepened because of the growing class divide. You know, So people in leafy college towns like Claremont, where I live, are much more culturally dis distant from the white working class than we would have been, say, 50 years ago. Yeah. And so I think in this age... You know, especially in this age of big data, we need these kinds. We need this kind of close field work more than more than uh, we did even 50 years ago. And I think also the final thing I'll say quickly here, Mark, is that if you really want to understand culture, you really have to see it close up, right? Like if you want to understand what are what are the norms of a people, what are their cultural sensibilities, assumptions, values, it actually helps to to observe people. Like what are they actually doing? Right. So not just what are they telling pollsters, but what are the sort of taken for granted assumptions about what's the right or wrong way to deal with conflict or behave? And to do that, you really need to saturate yourself in a place. You really need to live in a place. Well, one of the advances that I found in your study uh, really actually countered some of the frustrations one has when, when you read polls on an issue like race, because race is handled in so blunt and and overreaching away one of the things you found is that the the racial factors are actually much more complicated than news reports would say say about Trump Democrats and race you actually found that geography is a big factor that often gets misconstrued in in racial terms, what did you find there? Yeah, it's a good point about race, and it and it points to the limitations with our surveys. I mean, our surveys do ask a lot of questions about race because social scientists have been obsessed with it. But racial identity isn't the only social identity that people have, and so one of the things that struck us is that people have the people in the communities we studied also have thick class-based and they have place-based identities. And maybe I'll talk about each of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe, maybe maybe to get to that, 
you chose three Democrat communities and you immersed yourselves in those places. Uh, what, what were the three, and you can give us the, the, the racial dynamic and other dynamics that you found in those three communities. What, why those three? Yeah, it's a good question. So one was Ottumwa, Iowa, which is a small uh, industrial city in the Midwest. Uh, we studied Elliott County, Kentucky, which is, you know, in Appalachia, it's coal country. Uh, it's much poorer uh, than Ottumwa. And then we studied Johnston, Rhode Island, which is a suburb of Providence and uh, very Italian-American, dominated by Italians, has a strong Italian-American identity. And we picked these three for a number of reasons. I mean, one, of course, they all are deeply blue places. They've, they've got a long tradition of supporting Democratic presidents. All the local politicians are Democrats. Uh, the registered voters there are overwhelmingly Democratic. But then in addition, we wanted to pick places that were a little different. You know, I mean, we wanted a sort of range of places. We wanted places in different regions of the country with some and we wanted places with somewhat different ethnic makeups, too. I mean, as I mentioned, these are all white places, uh, but they're ethnically different. I mean, you know, in, in, in Appalachia, it's a lot of Scotch, Scots-Irish folks in, um, yeah, you know, a lot of Italians in Rhode Island. And they're different economically. But despite those differences, they have a, you know, they're culturally similar in, in various ways. They all have a very strong place-based identities. That is, they all really think of themselves fundamentally as Etumwans or Johnstonians or Elliott Countians. And, and that's for a number of reasons. I mean, partly, partly most of the folks in these communities have very deep roots. That is, they have family. They've been in these places for generations. But it's also the place where they're really known. They have thick social ties and connections to these communities. And it's really different, I think, for those of us, Mark, in the professional class. You know, I think people like, people, writers, academics, people like you and I, our identities are much more rooted in professional networks. You know, we're sort of known in a much more sort of national community. And our sense of self and, and identity is much less rooted in, in neighborhood, in a neighborhood or a particular town. And in fact, if we were to move, you know, if I took a job at Cambridge, for example, at Harvard, um, and I left Claremont, that would actually enhance my I, my identity, my, my professional identity. Whereas for these folks, you know, to leave Atamwa or to leave Johnston would be a sort of social death. It would be to lose all of the sort of networks and ties that give their that give their life meaning, that give them a sort of sense of self, right? So as, as similar as all these places are, right? And Atamwan, you know, if an Atamwan would feel utterly out of place in Johnston and a Johnstonian would feel really out of place in Elliott County. And this matters because these are also all places that are suffering from various kinds of economic and social stresses in recent decades. And so they're very much worried about the fate of their community. So, you know, when Trump said things like, you know, make America great again, they heard that, you know, he's going to make Atumwa great again, or he's going to make Elliott County great again. And so I think that sense that loyalty to place, that sense of rootedness in, in place is lost if all you think about is race, right? I mean, if you just assume these folks are motivated by racial identity and, and, and a sense of solidarity with other white folk, I think you, you, you miss their sort of loyalties to their community. And in a way, you know, I would say, Mark, their, their identities are more 
provincial than racial identity. I mean, white America is a pretty broad, that's a pretty big group of folks, you know, (laughs) and there is a sense in which white folk from nearby counties and communities are are sort of strangers or outsiders, right? They're, They're folks that they don't feel some the same sort of deep sort of sense of loyalty and connection to as they do their neighbors in their own hometown. Right. Well, I think this is one of the great strengths of the book, the geographical specificity that you bring and the importance of place, groundedness. For people, you, you know, professionals are, in, like, like us, we are increasingly placeless, right? We, we move around a lot. We're, we're, we're mobile. They're not. And I think this is one, one very good thing that the book brings out. And it's really an implicit criticism of political scientists in their discussions of the 2016 election. Are there other things that you feel the political scientists overlook, misunderstood about the Trump Democrats in that election? I do. I mean, in addition to deep loyalties to place, I I also think there's a sort of a a tone deafness to class. And I think one of the things Trump did well is he practiced and and embodied the the sort of cultural norms, class-based cultural norms that are common in these places. So for for example, in all the places we visited, there's a strong, um, there was a strong honor culture. So I'll spend a minute talking about what that is. And it's, it's a term that comes out of social science. In an honor culture, it's critical that one defends one's social reputation for toughness. That's very important, right? And so in an honor culture, the men especially, but also to some degree, the women are, it's very important that they demonstrate to their their enemies or their foes that they're tough. And that's how they often sort of resolve and deal with with conflicts. And if they don't, if they don't show their toughness, if they don't sort of punch back, that's always read as weakness in an honor culture. You know, it's always interpreted that way. So one can't take Michelle Obama's advice, right? Michelle Obama once said, you know, when, when they go low, we go high. You can't do that in our culture, right? Because if 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 you go high, your enemies will see that as weakness, and they'll they'll exploit you. And we saw this uh, actually in the political norms of these communities. You know, I'll give an example in Johnston, for example. The mayor there is a guy named Joe Policina, and every month there is a local town council meeting, and he's greeted by a handful of citizens who really dislike his rule. And they complain about various things that the mayor is doing. And he always lets them have it. You know, I mean, he <laughs> punches right back. He says, wait, wait, no, no, no. I, I think you got that wrong, because in the last meeting, I am sure that he said, well, I feel your pain. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, that's, so that's exactly right. Right. So that's that's what you don't want to do right, is to sort of sympathize with them in, in that way, right? Or Because that, that'll be read as weakness, right? And so so Mayor Policina, he always fights right back. And he tells the folks who complain, he, he calls them names. You know, he calls them misfits and malcontents, hmm. even douchebags, right? <laughs> I mean, he sort of slings it right back. And we yeah. asked, you know, when we first saw this, Mark, you know, we asked him, we said, gee, Joe, you know, why... Why do you do that? What's going on there? You know, why can't you be a little softer or indulgent of these 
disgruntled citizens. And he said, well, you can't, you know, it'll just show your weakness. And then they're going to roll right over you. Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas, and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas, and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. So you think that when, when Donald Trump uh, called Jeb Bush low energy, that's what was going on for the Trump Democrats. They got that instantly. Instantly. This is their world. And... And this is very important, right? So in, in, in my world here in Claremont, that sort of behavior that the example you just gave is only it's Trump. Trump is seen as someone with a sort of pathologically thin skin, someone who can't take an insult as someone with a psychological disorder. But in these communities, Trump's behavior is totally normal. You know, there's nothing weird about it. Uh, there's nothing pathological about it. That's just how one should respond. Right? That's just how one should deal with one's opponents when they come after you. You've got to punch back. And it's even better, of course, to be on the offensive, as Trump, as Trump always is. I think Trump got this culture, too, growing up in Queens. And, and his mother was of Scotch-Irish descent. And so for Trump, too, you know, there's, um, this, it's critically important always to be strong. You know, I mean, if he has a philosophy of leadership, it's to never show weakness. I think that kind of behavior is, it's a very class-based identity. You know, I think, I think in these communities, Trump seems socially proximate to them, you know, and so therefore they feel like they can trust him. He seems like one of them. He seems like someone of their world, someone that they recognize. Yeah. Now, one of the reasons that they seemed drawn to a fighter we, we need a fighter that you imply is that with these local oriented people had felt in the past that they could be very local oriented people, but that they had the impression, they had the experience that national politics were kind of descending upon them. That, that, that big national issues were coming into their lives and pushing bullying them. Is that correct? Well, what do you have in mind when you say big national issues, Mark? I mean that when the, when the Obama administration would mm -hmm. make a national rule mm -hmm. for schools and transgender students. Mm. That's now everywhere now. You know, sort of the loss of a local, feeling the federal government coming down on them that, that they, w was that a factor? I would give a slightly different account, Mark. I mean, what, yeah. I think what, what struck us about these folks is that until Trump came about, maybe with the exception of Elliot, which is a little different story, but, but generally speaking, they were, these are places that were really not tuned into national politics. 
because they were so locally oriented, right? When they thought about the Democratic Party, really they thought about their local Democratic Party, and they didn't pay as much attention to even state-level politics, but certainly federal-level politics. And so one of the things that Trump did is be, he, he really excited in these communities in a new way, right? So there are a lot of folks who told us that they had never been this excited to vote, right, uh, for a president. He really broke through to them and got them excited and interested in the national orbit in, in a new way, right, in a way that they hadn't been in the past. And so it was, it was almost as if there was a sort of a kind of awakening. And so suddenly you had folks who had not paid a ton of attention to national politics suddenly tune in and become interested. And then they got, and I think then they did start tuning into the kinds of the issues that you're pointing to here, Mark, right? I mean, in, in some ways they're becoming, slowly becoming Republicans as they're watching more Fox News, as they're paying more attention to Trump, uh, you know, as they have in these past four years, they're becoming creatures of national politics, you know? This leads into the 2020 election. And so I, I actually wanted you to extend, I, I think you should do another book on, on the last year and the Trump Democrats. Uh, did their vote did their vote change or was it just, did Trump lose any of those Trump Democrats or did, was it simply the Democrats got out the vote, got out their own populations that, that turned Pennsylvania, for instance? Generally, they did very, very well in the Obama-Trump counties. Uh, there was, so if you look at the 206, so there was 206 Obama-Trump counties and Trump retained about 90% of them. Okay. And in that 90%, he actually did better than he had done in 2016. So of those he won, he often won by even bigger margins. Okay. So Trump did very well in those places, uh, with some exceptions. Uh, you know, there were some counties in Pennsylvania he lost that swung the other way, and those, those were important. Some phenomena that you... You, you identify, you refer to a, quote, growing Trump mania at one point uh, that gets to what you were saying, the enthusiasm for Donald. They got excited about politics that they hadn't been excited about before. And that goes for Democrats. Did they, were they excited about Bill Clinton? No, no, not. I mean, you know, when, when we asked them to reflect on a candidate that really excited them in the way that Trump did, they, they often struggled to come up with any. Um, you know, some of the real old timers sometimes would say that, you know, they, they would talk about JFK. They'd have to go back that far. You know, I mean, I think they generally thought Clinton was fine. It, it's not as if they disliked Clinton. Uh, but they didn't, but Clinton didn't excite them in the way that, in the way that Trump, Trump did. I mean, Trump is just, just sort of special. And, and you could really see this in the, um, really before the 20, the general election in 2016, you could really see it locally in the, in the, in the primaries, because you had tons of citizens in these communities who wanted to change their party registration just so they could vote in the Republican primaries. And then they wanted to change it back to Democrats, right? So they, they, they wanted, 
who just wanted to vote for Trump. And that's one of the big things our book is trying to make sense of, right? We're trying to understand not just why they flipped, but why they adore Trump and why there's such a huge divide that's opened up in the Democratic Party between some of these folks who really just think Trump is the best president in their lifetime and those Democrats in communities like mine who think that you know that Trump is the worst president in their in their lifetime. Yeah. Was uh, distaste for Hillary Clinton a significant factor in their enthusiasm for Trump? No, it it wasn't. I mean, I think that was true, you know, certainly more nationally that certainly hurt the Democrats in 2016. But I really think it misunderstood. I think it's a really profound misreading of the 2016 to read this as, you know, a lesser of two evils, to sort of see them reading the, the, their choices that way. They were all in on Trump, right? Uh, they were thrilled about Trump before, you know, Hillary was even officially declared uh, the nominee uh, that year. So, uh, no. And, and I think you see this. It helps explain in some ways the sort of moment we're in, Mark, right, where, I mean, we have uh, on the Republican side, you know, we have Trump who's had a single term in office. He's lost the popular vote twice. He's, he's um, you know, lost uh, all three branches of government, but he's still sort of the unofficial leader of the Republican Party. Yeah. And I think that's the case because there's this you know, group of very strong group of Republicans that really adore him. And uh, so, you know, our Trump Democrats are just are a slice of that broader universe and world. Yeah. Uh, what do you think would happen to the Trump, Trump Democrats without Trump? You, you mentioned that they were drifting over to the Republican Party. If they don't find another Trump-like figure, will they go back to the Democrats? Yeah, that's the million dollar question, right? It's sort of what's going to happen to them. Uh, I suspect that they they will continue to drift toward the Republican Party and that their loyalties to the Democrats will weaken over time. I think that's partly the case because, as I mentioned earlier, they're tuning in more to sort of national politics. And I think a lot of them are discovering that they're, you know, that the Democratic Party is more progressive than they thought it was. You know, I think a lot of these communities have been buffered from the platform, really, of the National Democratic Party because they've been such localist. And so the face of the Democratic Party for these folks has been their local leaders who are much more moderate, much more sort of New Deal, old school Democrats. And so they're, they're sort of recognizing now that the party is, is much more um, left than they, they recognized. And so I think even when Trump fades from the political scene, although a lot of them will think that their, their ideological home is really in the Republican Party. But of course, a lot depends on candidates, too, Mark. And, you know, I don't know, you know, uh, it's hard to know, right, who the next nominee will be. I mean, I think it will it would help Republicans hold on to these communities if if they um, you know, embrace some of the, if, if they really speak to their local concerns and interest. And if the candidate doesn't feel too, too socially and culturally removed, right, from, uh, from, their, from their worlds. The book is Trump's Democrats. Professor John Shields, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. 
And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.